Welcome to another adult Bible study guide exploring the book of Job. Written by Clifford Goldstein. Edited for audio and produced by the Ambassador Group. Narrated by Byron Phillips and Lynette Newhart. Exploration 11. Out of the Whirlwind. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know and have understanding. Job chapter 38 and verse 4, the Amplified Bible. Whatever their differences, the characters in the book of Job had one thing in common. Each had a lot to say about God, or at least about his understanding of God. And as we have discovered, much of what they said we could agree on. After all, who would argue with this? But now ask the beasts, and they will teach you, and the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you, and the fish of the sea will explain to you. Who among all these does not know that the hand of the Lord has done this, and whose hand is the life of every living thing, and the breath of all mankind? Job chapter 12, verses 7 through 10, the New King James Version. Or with this, Does God subvert judgment, or does the Almighty pervert justice? Job chapter 8 and verse 3, also New King James Version. And while the context was Job's suffering, the main focus of discussion was God. With the exception of the first two chapters, though, the Lord remained hidden in the background as the book progressed. All that, however was about to change. God himself, the subject of so much discussion and debate in the book of Job, will now speak for himself. of the whirlwind. Listen to Job chapter 38 and verse 1. Question. What happens that was different from everything else in all the other dialogues? Job chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Suddenly and unexpectedly, the Lord now appears in the book of Job the first time since Job chapter 2 and verse 6, the New King James Version. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, but spare his life. Nothing really prepares the reader for this sudden appearance of God. Job 37 ends with Elihu's speech, and the next thing we know, the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Job chapter 38 and verse 1. Instantly, it is just God and Job, as if the other men are irrelevant, at least for now. The word whirlwind comes from a Hebrew word that means storm or tempest, and it has been used in connection with the appearance of God to humans. There are two Old Testament references. 
Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 6. You will be punished by the Lord of hosts with thunder and earthquake and great noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 14. Then the Lord will be seen hovering over them, protecting his people, and his arrow will go forth like lightning, and the Lord God will blow the trumpet and will march in the windstorms of the south. It was also the word used in the context of Elijah's being taken to heaven. When the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. Second Kings chapter 2 and verse 1, the New International Version. Though we are not given any physical details about this theophany, a visible manifestation of God to humanity, it is clear that God isn't speaking to Job in a still small voice as he did to Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 12. Instead, the Lord manifested himself in a very powerful way, one that certainly got Job's attention. Of course, this isn't the only time God had revealed himself to fallen humans. Again and again, the scriptures show us the closeness of God to humanity. What do the next three texts teach you about how near God can be to you? Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward for obedience shall be very great. Abram said, Lord God, what reward will you give me? since I am leaving this world childless, and he who will be the owner and heir of my house is this servant, Eliezer, from Damascus. And Abram continued, Since you have given no child to me, one, a servant born in my house, is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man, Eliezer, will not be your heir, but he who shall come from your own body shall be your heir. And the Lord brought Abram outside his tent into the night and said, Look now toward the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them, then he said to him, So numerous shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed in, affirmed, trusted in, relied on, remained steadfast to the Lord, and he counted, credited to him as righteousness, doing right in regard to God and man. Genesis chapter 32, verses 24 through 32. So Jacob was left alone, and a man came and wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he had not prevailed against Jacob, he touched his hip joint, and Jacob's hip was dislocated as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you declare a blessing on me. So he asked him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be Jacob. But Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. 
But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And he declared a blessing of the covenant promises on Jacob there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, the face of God, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has not been snatched away. Now the sun rose on him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore to this day the Israelites do not eat the tendon of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because he touched the socket of Jacob's thigh by the tendon of the hip. John chapter 1 and verse 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Bible teaches us the great and important truth that our God is not a distant God who created our world and then left us to ourselves. Instead, He is a God who closely interacts with us, no matter our sorrows, our troubles, or whatever we face in this life. We can have the assurance that God is near and that we can trust Him. It's one thing to believe intellectually in the nearness of God to us. It's quite another to experience that nearness. How do you get near to God and get hope and comfort from your relationship with Him? God's Question After what must have seemed to Job like a very long silence, God finally speaks to him, even if what he first said might not have been what Job wanted to hear. What was the first question that God asked Job, and what was implied in that question? Job chapter 38 and verse 2. Who is this that darkens counsel, questioning my authority and wisdom by words without knowledge? All through the Bible, we find God asking humans questions. This is not because he doesn't know the answers already. Instead, as a good teacher often does, God asks questions because they are an effective way to get us to think about our situation, to make us confront ourselves, to help us work through issues and come to the proper conclusions. The questions, then, that God asks are not to teach the Lord something that he didn't already understand. Rather, they are often asked in order to help people learn things that perhaps they needed to understand better. God's questions are a rhetorical device to help reach people with truth. Listen to the following questions from God and Jesus. Two questions for you to answer. What do you think God's or Jesus' purpose is in asking those questions? What point is he making? Genesis chapter 3 and verse 11. God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten fruit from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Genesis chapter 4 and verse 9. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he lied and said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 9. There he came to a cave and spent the night in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, 
What are you doing here, Elijah? Acts chapter 9 and verse 4. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice from heaven saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting and oppressing me? Matthew chapter 16 and verse 13. Now when Jesus went into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Job had a lot to say about God, and the Lord obviously wanted him to see that. In fact, there was a lot he didn't know or understand about his Creator. In many ways, God's opening question to Job parallels some of the words that these men had said to him as well. Here is what Job said. Job chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. Then Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, How long will you say these things? And will the words of your mouth be a mighty wind? Job chapter 11, the first three verses. Then so far the Nahamite answered and said, Shall a multitude of words not be answered? And should a talkative man making such a long-winded defense be acquitted? Should your boasts and babbles silence men? And shall you scoff and no one put you to shame? And Job chapter 15, verses 1, 2, and 3. Then Eliphaz the Temanite answered Job and said, Should a wise man such as you utter such windy and vain knowledge as we have just heard, and fill himself with the east wind of withering, parching, and violent accusations? Should he rebuke and argue with useless talk, or with words in which there is no benefit? If God were to ask you a question about the state of your life right now, what do you think he would ask, and what would you answer? What do the question and the answer teach you about yourself? Creator. Listen to Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 41 in the New King James Version. What questions does God ask Job? And what is the purpose of those questions? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? To what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst forth and issued from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band? when I fixed my limit for it and set bars and doors, when I said, This far you may come, but no farther, 
and here your proud waves must stop. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? And caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the ends of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it. It takes on form like clay under a seal, and stands out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and the upraised arm is broken. Have you entered the springs of the sea, or have you walked in search of the depths? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the doors of the shadow of death? Have you comprehended the breadth of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this. Where is the way to the dwelling of light and darkness? Where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, that you may know the paths to its home. Do you know it because you were born then? or because the number of your days is great? Have you entered the treasury of snow, or have you seen the treasury of hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? By what way is light diffused, or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has divided a channel for the overflowing water, or path for the thunderbolt? to cause it to rain on a land where there is no one, a wilderness in which there is no man, to satisfy the desolate waste and cause to spring forth the growth of tender grass. Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew, from whose womb comes the ice? And the frost of heaven, who gives it birth? The waters harden like stone, and the surface of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades, or loose the belt of Orion? Can you bring out Mazaroth in its season, or can you guide the great bear with its cubs? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you set their dominion over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds, that an abundance of water may cover you? Can you send out lightnings, that they may go, and Say to you, here we are. Who has put wisdom in the mind? Or who has given understanding to the heart? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can pour out the bottles of heaven when the dust hardens clumps and the clods cling together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion? Or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or or lurk in their lairs to lie in wait? Who provides food for the raven when its young ones cry to God and wander about for lack of food? If Job expected some detailed explanation about why all these calamities happened to him, he didn't get it. Instead, what he got was a flow of rhetorical questions contrasting the Lord in his creative might to the transience and ignorance of poor Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The Lord begins. After echoing some of the earliest images in Genesis, for example, the origins of the earth, the sea, light, and darkness, God says to Job, basically, that of course you know all these things because you were born then, or because the number of your days is great. 
The Lord then points to wonders and mysteries of creation, again with a series of rhetorical questions that cover not just the foundations of the earth, but also the mysteries of the weather and even of the stars themselves. Can you bind the cluster of the Pleiades or loose the belt of Orion? He then points Job back to the earth, to everything from human insight to the lives of wild animals, a theme that is fleshed out in much more detail all through Job chapter 39 as well. Had the book been written today, the Lord might have asked, Who binds the quarks and protons and neutrons? Where were you when I first measured out a Planck mass? Is it by your wisdom that gravity bends space and time? The answer to all these questions is the same. Of course not. Job wasn't there for any of those events, and he had little knowledge about any of the phenomena the Lord referred to. God's point was to show Job that even with all his wisdom and knowledge, and even though he spoke right about God in contrast to these other men, Job still knew so little, and his lack of knowledge was best revealed by how great Job's ignorance of the created world was. If Job knew so little about the creation, how much could he understand about the Creator? What a powerful contrast between the Creator and the created, between God and humanity. Though God contrasted himself to Job, any other human being, with the exception of Jesus, would have sufficed as well. What are we in contrast to God? And yet, look at what this God has done to save us and to offer us the hope of eternal fellowship with Him. Wisdom of the Wise From our perspective today, it's easy to look at the questions that God had asked Job and realize how little a man like Job, living thousands of years ago, could understand about the created world. It wasn't until the A.D. 1500s, for instance, that humans, at least some of them, finally understood that the motion of the sun in the sky was the result of the rotation of the earth on its axis and the reverse of the orbit of the sun around the earth, a truth that most of us take for granted now. Thanks mostly to modern science, we live today with knowledge of the natural world that people in Bible times couldn't begin to comprehend. And yet, even with all this acquired knowledge, we humans are still so limited in our understanding of the natural world and its origins. Listen to the questions God asked Job in chapters 38 and 39. How much better could you answer them? Who is this that darkens counsel, questioning my authority and wisdom, 
by words without knowledge. Now gird up your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you instruct me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you know, and have understanding. Who determined the measurements of the earth, if you know? Or who stretched the measuring line on it? On what were its foundations fastened? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God, angels, shouted for joy, or who enclosed the sea with doors when it burst forth and went out of the womb, when I made the clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and marked for it my appointed boundary, and set bars and doors defining the shorelines, and said, This far you shall come, but no farther, and here your proud waves shall stop. Since your days began, have you ever commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place, so that light may take hold of the corners of the earth and shake the wickedness out of it? The earth is changed like clay into which a seal is pressed, and the things of the earth stand out like a multicolored garment. Their light is withheld from the wicked, and the uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered and explored the springs of the sea? Or have you walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you understood the expanse of the earth? Tell me, if you know all this. Where is the way where light dwells? And as for darkness, where is its place? That you may take it to its territory, and that you may know the paths to its house. You must know, since you were born then, and because you are so extremely old. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the days of battle and war? Where is the way that the light is distributed, or the east wind scattered over the earth? Who has prepared a channel for the torrents of rain and for the flood, or a path for the thunderbolt, to bring rain on the uninhabited land and on the desert where no man lives, to satisfy the barren and desolate ground, and to make the seeds of grass to sprout? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? Out of whose womb has come the ice? and the frost of heaven who has given it birth. Water becomes like stone and hides itself, and the surface of the deep is frozen and imprisoned. Can you bind the chains of the cluster of stars called Pleiades, or loose the cords of the constellation Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the stars of the bear with her sons? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens, or can you establish their rule over the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds so that an abundance of water will cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are? Who has put wisdom in the uttermost being of man, or in the layers of clouds, or given understanding to the mind of man, or to the heavenly display?
Who can count the clouds by earthly wisdom, or pour out the water jars of the heavens? And when the dust hardens into a mass, and the clods stick together because of the heat, can you, Job, hunt the prey for the lion, or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? When they crouch in their dens and lie in wait in their lair, who provides prey for the raven? When its young cry to God and wander about without food. Chapter 39 Do you know the time when the wild goats of the rock give birth to their young? Do you observe the calving of the deer? Can you count the months that they carry offspring, or do you know the time when they give birth? They kneel down. They bring forth their young. They cast out their labor pains. Their young ones become strong. They grow up in the open field. They leave and do not return to them. Who sent out the wild donkey free from dependence on man? And who has loosed the bonds of the wild donkey to survive in the wild? To whom I gave the wilderness as his home and the salt land as his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city and does not hear the shouting of the taskmaster. He explores the mountains as his pasture and searches after every green thing. Will the wild ox be willing to serve you or remain beside your manger at night? Can you bind the wild ox with a harness to the plow in the furrow? Or will he plow the valleys for you? Will you trust him? because his strength is great, and leave your labor to him. Will you have faith and depend on him to return your grain and gather it from your threshing floor? The flightless wings of the ostrich wave joyously with the pinion shackles, fetters, and plumage of love. For she leaves her eggs on the ground and warms them in the dust forgetting that a foot may crush them or that the wild beast may trample them. She treats her young cruelly as if they were not hers, though her labor is in vain because she is unconcerned for the safety of her brood. For God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. Yet when she lifts herself on high, so swift is she that she laughs at the horse and his rider. Have you given the horse his might? Have you clothed his neck with quivering and a shaking mane? Have you, Job, made him leap like a locust? The majesty of his snorting nostrils is terrible. He paws in the valley and rejoices in his strength. He goes out to meet the weapons of armed men. He laughs at fear and is not dismayed, and in battle he does not turn back from the sword. The quiver rattles against him, and as do the flashing spear and the lance of his rider. With fierceness and rage he races to devour the ground, and he does not stand still at the sound of the war trumpet. As often as the trumpet sounds, he says, Aha! And he smells the battle from far away, and senses the thunder of the captains and the war cry. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars, stretching his wings toward the south as winter approaches? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up, 
and makes his nest on high in an inaccessible place. On the cliff he dwells and remains securely, upon the point of the rock and the inaccessible stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes see it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there is he. There is no question that science has revealed to us facets of reality that were previously hidden. However, so much still remains for us to learn. In many ways, far from removing the majesty and the mystery of God's creation, science has made it even more fascinating, revealing a depth and complexity of the natural world that previous generations knew nothing about. The secret things belong unto the Lord our God, but those things which are revealed belong unto us and to our children forever. Deuteronomy 29.29 Just how God accomplished the work of creation, He has never revealed to men. Human science cannot search out the secrets of the Most High. His creative power is as incomprehensible as his existence. The writing of Ellen G. White in her book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113. What warning, however, do you hear in the following two texts in regard to the great limits of human knowledge? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 19. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness, absurdity, stupidity before God. For it is written in Scripture, He is the one who catches the wise and clever in their craftiness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 27. For the message of the cross is foolishness, absurd and illogical to those who are perishing and spiritually dead because they reject it. But to us who are being saved by God's grace, it is the manifestation of the power of God. For it is written, and forever remains written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the philosophy of the philosophers, and the cleverness of the clever, who do not know me, I will nullify. Where is the wise man, philosopher? Where is the scribe, scholar? Where is the debater, logician, orator of this age? Has God not exposed the foolishness of this world's wisdom? For since the world, through all its earthly wisdom, failed to recognize God, God in his wisdom was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached regarding salvation to save those who believe in Christ and welcome him as Savior. For Jews demand signs, attesting miracles, and Greeks pursue worldly wisdom and philosophy. But we preach Christ crucified a message which is, to Jews, a stumbling block that provokes their opposition, and to Gentiles, foolishness, just utter nonsense. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. This is because the foolishness of God 
is not foolishness at all, and wiser than men, far beyond human comprehension, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, far beyond the limits of human effort. Just look at your own calling, believers. Not many of you were considered wise according to human standards, not many powerful or influential, not many of high and noble birth. But God has selected for his purpose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, revealing their ignorance. And God has selected for his purpose the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, revealing their frailty. Even with all the knowledge humans have accumulated in the past few hundred years, the creation remains full of wonders and mysteries that we can barely fathom. The more we learn about the created world, the more amazing and mysterious it appears to us. In what ways does the created world cause you to marvel before the power of God? Repenting in Dust and Ashes Listen to Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 4, and Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Here's the question. What was Job's response to God's revelation of himself? Job chapter 40, verses 1 through 4. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Let him dispute with God answer it. Then Job replied to the Lord and said, Behold, I am of little importance and contemptible. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. And Job chapter 42, verses 1 through 6. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no thought or purpose of yours can be restrained. You said to me, Who is this that darkens and obscures counsel by words without knowledge? Therefore I now see, I have rashly uttered that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, please, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct and answer me. I had heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my spiritual eyes see you. Therefore I retract my words and hate myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. Obviously, Job was overwhelmed by what God had shown him. In fact, in Job chapter 42 and verse 3, when he says, Who is this who hides counsel without knowledge? New King James Version, he was simply repeating God's first question to him. Job knew the answer now. It was Job himself who spoke about what he really didn't know. Notice, too, what Job said in Job chapter 42 and verse 5. I had heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my spiritual eye sees you. Though he had only heard about God, 
now that he saw God, that is, now that he got a better view of God, he saw himself for what he really was. That's why he reacted as he did, abhorring himself and repenting in dust and ashes. Let's compare Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5 and Luke chapter 5 verses 1 through 8. How do the reactions described there parallel that of Job? Isaiah chapter 6 verses 1 through 5. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw in a vision the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted, with the train of his royal robe filling the most holy part of the temple. Above him, seraphim, heavenly beings stood. Each one had six wings. With two wings he covered his face. With two wings he covered his feet. And with two wings he flew. And one called out to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out. And the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of ceremonially unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Compared with Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Now it happened that while Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee, with the people crowding all around him and listening to the word of God, that he saw two boats lying at the edge of the lake. But the fishermen had gotten out of them and were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put out a little distance from the shore. And he sat down and began teaching the crowds from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon Peter, Put out into the deep water and lower your nets for a catch of fish. Simon replied, Master, we worked hard all night to the point of exhaustion and caught nothing in our nets. But at your word, I will do as you say and lower the nets again. When they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their nets were at the point of breaking, so they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both of the boats with fish, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw this, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Go away from me. I am a sinful man, O Lord. What we see in all these cases are manifestations of a key Bible truth, and that is the sinfulness of humanity. Job was blameless and upright, and one who feared God and shunned evil. Job chapter 1 and verse 1, the New King James Version. And despite Satan's best attempts to turn him against God, Job stayed faithful through it all. We are dealing here with a solid, faithful believer in the Lord. And yet, what? As with Isaiah and Peter, a glimpse of the holiness and power of God 
was enough to make Job cringe with a sense of his own sinfulness and smallness. That's because we are all fallen, sin-damaged beings whose very nature itself brings us into conflict with God. That's why, in the end, no one can save himself. No one can do enough good works to merit any favor before God. That's why we all, even the best among us, those who like Job are upright and blameless and who fear God and shun evil, need grace, need a Savior, need someone to do for us what we can never do for ourselves. Fortunately, we have all that and more in Jesus. Imagine yourself right now, standing face to face before God. What do you think your reaction would be? Let's continue exploring. Here are a few thoughts to ponder. God has permitted a flood of light to be poured upon the world in both science and art. But when professedly scientific men treat upon these subjects from a merely human point of view, they will assuredly come to wrong conclusions. It may be innocent to speculate beyond what God's Word has revealed if our theories do not contradict facts found in the scriptures. But those who leave the word of God and seek to account for his created works upon scientific principles are drifting without chart or compass upon an unknown ocean. The greatest minds, if not guided by the word of God in their research, become bewildered in their attempts to trace the relations of science and revelation. Because the Creator and His works are so far beyond their comprehension that they are unable to explain them by natural laws, they regard Bible history as unreliable. Those who doubt the reliability of the records of the Old and New Testaments will be led to go a step further and doubt the existence of God. And then, having lost their anchor, they are left to beat about upon the rocks of infidelity. The writing of Ellen G. White in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, page 113. Here are a few questions to consider. Consider the Ellen G. White statement that we just heard. What evidence do we see that what she warned about is actually happening, especially in the area of science? What are some things that science, at least as now practiced, teaches that are in blatant contradiction to God's Word. 
Alfred North Whitehead, an influential mathematician and author who lived in the previous century, said the following, quote, 57 years ago, it was when I was a young man in the University of Cambridge, I was taught science and mathematics by brilliant men, and I did well in them. Since the turn of the century, I have lived to see every one of the basic assumptions of both set aside. And yet, in the face of that, the discoverers of the new hypotheses in science are declaring, now at last we have certitude. End quote. A. N. Whitehead is author of the book Dialogues of Alfred North Whitehead. What does this tell you about being careful when considering what the world's great men teach us, especially when what they teach blatantly contradicts God's word? What are some of the marvels of creation that modern science has revealed that people in the time of Job or even just 200 years ago couldn't possibly have understood? How do these things reveal even more the amazing creative power of our Lord? AmbassadorGroup.org This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.